Before we get started with this episode, I just wanted to come in and give a quick content warning. We talk a lot about Percy Granger's life, and as a result, we end up talking about scientific racism, Nazis, suicide, BDSM, and incest. So, just a fair warning, Percy Granger, man. Welcome to Too Much Not Enough, a podcast about the obsessions of two very intense people. I'm Emma Winston. And I'm Darius Kazemi, and today we're going to talk to you about Percy Granger. Um, so this is this is my topic. Percy Granger is kind of a lapsed obsession for me. I discovered that he existed in, I think, 2009 when I was doing my undergraduate degree and became inexplicably obsessed with him. Percy Granger was an Australian composer. He was also a concert pianist, but he is much more interesting as a composer than as a pianist. He was born in Melbourne in 1882 and he died in 1961. He's mostly known for his more boring work in my opinion also in his also in his opinion too also in his opinion also in he's his gone opinion. on the record just being like ugh i hate that i'm known for this boring stuff and yet i mean he even i mean the boring stuff he was still pretty important like he he played a really significant role in like reviving interest in english folk music in the early 20th century despite the fact that he was australian right and kind of um was very influential in kind of early like folk song collection onto like wax cylinders and stuff which is probably the thing that he's best known for but also one of the least interesting things about him, in my opinion. Right. Well, and 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 specifically, not only was he doing like the ethnomusicology thing where he was going around and collecting, you know, stuff on wax cylinders, but he was also, um, he also did his own arrangements of these songs and a lot of his really popular early stuff is based on these folk tunes, right? Yeah, I mean, he was arranging folk songs before he ever kind of released any of his own compositions, essentially because he wanted to kind of develop as a composer before kind of putting stuff out into the world. I, fe- I think it was through the 1920s, maybe 30s, early 30s, that he was still doing that. But again, that's kind of the stuff that has followed him. But then a lot of his folk song settings are, I think, extremely interesting. Well, I, I just, I also just into his... Uh, early biography a little bit too this was he was someone who had extreme success very early in his life i mean relatively right like he was it was his early folk music stuff that got him it was i think it was in the 1910s or 20s that he was uh like touring the touring the world he was one of the most well-known so yeah so he moved to he moved to germany in 1890s and then subsequently moved to london where he was extremely, extremely successful as a pianist, very, very young. Um, in yeah, so the early 1900s, so like 1902, 1903, he was kind of very, very successful. Um, then kind of started to compose and started publishing his first compositions from 1911 and then left for America, which was where he remained for most of the rest of his life. He had a couple, a decade or two there where he was just super in demand. He was one of the most popular musicians on the planet. And yet it was never 
what he particularly wanted to be doing. Right. And and I think it's kind of interesting that, I mean, we don't really hear about kind of performers as being kind of part of like the classical canon in the same way as we do mm-hmm. composers. Like he's not he's not really remembered for being a pianist, even though that was probably the thing he was most successful at during his lifetime. Right. And that's probably as he would have wanted it. Yeah, for sure. And he also, I mean, he felt that performers were inferior to composers anyway. (laughs) He felt a lot of people were inferior to a lot of other people. Oh, God, one of his many hierarchies. I feel like, should we we establish that now? Um, No, I actually think it's worth talking about now because it's sort of rooted in his his, um, love of English folk music. Yeah, so... He, mm. He sort of considered... He considered English uh, tradition to be rooted in Nordic tradition for whatever weird reasons in his own head. And so he felt that like ancient English stuff and Nordic stuff was related. And as you might guess, someone who's obsessed with like Nordic culture being the greatest culture in the world incredibly racist about it just super racist like like racist like like not even you know he's like oh you're saxon fuck you you're also yeah racist in a way that is kind of not completely coherent by to i mean not coherent at all by today's standards like the people who he hated the most were germans and italians right and he had a he had a massive falling out with his uh, German uh, uh, sort of mentor at the beginning at, when he was when he moved to Germany, right? I know that when he moved to Germany, he kind of hooked up with a bunch of other English composers, and they kind of formed a group to try and and move like music away from the German symphonic project. I don't know how much of the Central Europe hatred was a result of the kind of dominance that they had over the kind of project of classical music but he was particularly unusually vehement about it shall we say right to the point of developing his own language which was entirely purged of any greek or latin word roots and his letters are written in this language several of his pieces are titled in this language and it's completely ridiculous Wait, what was his word for instrument I've got a glossary open here somewhere tone tool tone tool musical composition is tone work morality is ought code Thought code insurmountable is unclimb overable which is whimsical, I suppose, except it's because of except racism. Except it's because of racism. Yes, the, like the incoherence of his racism is particularly interesting. Like when he moved to America, he was, I believe, quite heavily involved in black rights campaigns, like very, very early on, like long before kind of that was a consideration for most white people in America in the early 20th century. Right, yeah. like before the civil rights movement um, really took hold. And yet, despite this, he was dizzyingly racist towards people who are who people who are not necessarily systematically oppressed today right. but he would have liked them to have been which like many other things about him is completely baffling and also i mean this is sort of i suppose it's less it's less noticeable than like the titles of his works and stuff but he I don't think ever composed anything with like a conventional like symphonic structure. Mm, yeah. Like everything is kind of in his own sort of 
usually quite linear. Like right. there'll just be an idea that's repeated over and over and over and isn't kind of part of an overarching larger structure because he thought that that was part of the German symphonic project and was meant to keep like the the valiant island people down. Right. Yeah, I, I just I just love that love in quotes that he was a musician who was so racist that he did not use the word music. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> because it's Greek. Because it's Greek. I think there's some words in the glossary which in fact do still contain a bunch of Greek and Latin roots. So essentially he came up with this language that it that pleased him because he thought it was purged of of all central European elements. Right. Again, you know, it's just it's just that incoherence and uh, of 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 racism. Yeah. I mean, especially you see this a lot with people who buy into kind of like a scientific racism, um, and uh, and it's uh, it's just. I mean, most racism is incoherent and doesn't make any sense. Mm. Um, like when you get down to the actions of the individuals and that sort of thing. So you know, that's why that's why every racist person can be like, yeah, but I have a black friend. True. It is baffling in some ways, uh, but it's baffling in the way that racist people can be baffling just generally. True. I suppose I suppose the, the thing that's particularly strange about it to me is that it, it didn't seem to emerge from like a movement for him. It was just kind of these deeply fringe ideas that he had that and even the the group of composers that he was part of in Frankfurt, as far as I know, were not as partial to these bizarre ideas of Nordic and British supremacy. Yeah, although the you know that was a that was a fertile time for early theorizing in that area. Um, I mean, it's no it's no um, uh, coincidence that that was sort of the generation that would go on to found Nazi ideals and that sort of thing. Um, so there was a lot of. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he was influenced at least by reading some books or articles mm. by people who were doing the scientific racism and eugenics thing. Yeah, I don't know. I well, I think. I mean, it's odd because so much of the scientific racism of that era is in favor of Central Europe rather than explicitly discriminatory against it. Yes, but there's even a hi- hierarchies inside of there um, mm. as well, and there's a there was a lot of. Nordic type theorizing as well. I mean, most mm. modern day Nazis specifically tied to tie themselves to Nordic culture. Yeah, actually, like that's, I did know that. Yeah. So you know. So it does have a precedent, and I mean, yeah. I I had always kind of assumed that it partially emerged from that being an era in which there was quite a lot of musical activity happening amongst English composers, but it was kind of not seen as being a nation that was particularly musically influential. I can't remember who it was who called England the land without music. That was like ah. early 20th century. Nice. So so we've talked we've covered a little bit of his early biography and his and his racism. Let's I want to know, okay, so you were obsessed with him. Why? I so I can't remember how I came across him. I know one of my lecturers mentioned him and I went away and looked him up and at the time didn't know anything about him but listened to a couple of his arrangements. So I think the first thing I heard was his version of the Renaissance composer John Dowland's song Now Oh Now I Needs Must Part. Did you did you stumble across that? I did, yeah. It it is one of his it is one of his more popular uh compositions, I believe. 
and it just kind of grabbed me like it starts as a kind of very straightforward arrangement of the song for wind orchestra and then it just kind of like opens up into this like weird linear ramble of ideas that's incredibly like lush and late romantic and beautiful and like completely reharmonizes the melody and adds a whole section at the end and it's like it becomes something completely different from how it begins And I remember listening to it and being like, oh my God, no one told me that people were writing stuff that sounded like this in early 20th century England. And then went away and started investigating everything else that he'd ever done. I I have, in my notes here, I have written down that he gathers up ideas and motifs like a catamari, (laughs) which... I don't remember writing, but I think he's completely accurate. Like, a lot of my favourite pieces by him are the ones where he kind of takes an existing melody and then just, like, adds and yeah. adds and adds and adds yeah. to it. And it's like, surely this is too much. And it's not I, too much. Yeah, I was really just kind of blown away by his by his work, his compositions, when I listen to them. Uh, you know, I'm not a... I, I don't have the background in classical music that you do. Um, but I actually aesthetically agree with Granger. I don't like the classical sort of German, Austrian, um, symphonic movement style music. I mean, like, I like it. It's okay. But uh, I I actually prefer things... Uh, I prefer pieces that are like, kind of like what he was composing himself, which are just these sort of additive explorations of the sort of different textures of a single idea. I feel exactly the same, (laughs) which I could never admit as an undergraduate student on a music course, (laughs) but not a fan of large-scale symphonic forms either. It's also no surprise to me that he he loved jazz music enough for it to warp his racism into further incoherence. Um, Because jazz is kind of a, you know, it's obvious folk roots and that sort of thing, which I'm sure endeared it to him. But... Uh, but also it's that same overall concept. I mean, you wouldn't hear his music and go, oh, this is jazz. But uh, they both, you know, work with a theme and around a theme and sort of explore that theme mm-hmm. um, over an amount of time. So I really, um, it's no surprise to me that he, you know, would, uh, there's like some pictures of him with like Duke Ellington, I want to say. Yeah, I think he, whichever university he was affiliated with in the state oh yeah it was uh it was columbia or nyu i think he yeah got duke ellington into nyu as a guest lecturer and he i mean he was teaching on what i assume was a traditional mid-20th century music course and also ridiculous because uh for those of you who maybe don't know new york's geography very well nyu was in harlem Mm -hmm. It's in Harlem. So that would be like, uh, you know, the equivalent of having a, a genius composer living next door mm-hmm. and uh, or player living next door and uh, uh, and not inviting him to speak at your music program. You know, 
Um, so, so we were what we, to sort of get back to things you were, we were talking about, kind of. So your your obsession with him over time. I think. I mean, I kind of fell in love with his stuff because it's such an interesting mix of kind of being really familiar and cosy and pretty and kind of harmonically it's it's nice to listen to like it's not difficult listening but conceptually a lot of his pieces are quite experimental and you wouldn't necessarily know from hearing them and i think there's something about the balance of kind of of that niceness and the sort of the texture of it and the orchestration and it's just it's very beautiful but it's also conceptually really ambitious and I found that really interesting and then the more I dug into his biography the more bizarre a person I realized he was and the more interested (laughs) I I became. His his music sounds really almost uncanny to me in a lot of ways like if I were to uh, like you know someone was like oh if you uh, wanted to soundtrack a, a fairy kingdom or something you know like maybe some granger compositions would be a good choice for that uh just because yeah i i, I agree with what you said in terms of like the compositions are very pretty but actually when i hear the 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 harmonics of the pieces and that sort of thing there's like unusual harmon- harmonics going on there mm. it, it's it's not dissonant but it's not um but it's not like normal it's definitely pretty and abnormal there's a great book chapter which by Philip Eames. It's essentially a really, really like quantitative deep dive into, I think, samples of pieces across his entire lifetime. And he maps out the kind of harmonic structure and the chords in and like the voicings and stuff in various ways and uses all kinds of different kind of mapping methods which are completely unfamiliar to me and probably extremely familiar to you and kind of looks at like the trajectory of how he used harmony across his lifetime there's two chords that underpin most western classical music and he spent his life avoiding them and the older he got the less he used them can you be more technical because i'm curious so there's chord one and chord five yeah one and five okay sure Yeah. yeah one and five yeah, well, yeah, because like songs have like a one four five type structure yeah. to them a lot of times, which then also ends up like the keys on which kind of larger structures are based ends mm-hmm. up mirroring that, so you end up with it on like a micro level and a macro level, right. and he avoids it on both. Oh right, well that explains that explains a lot. That's actually really yeah, helpful for does. me to hear because that's that's awesome though. Yeah, so yeah, he avoids the ones and the fives. That's uh, that's kind of uh, uh, amazing to me. And that that would explain why it's you know it's still pretty, but it doesn't sound like it know. sounds very contemporary to me. Like it does, yeah. Because unlike now, pop music is seemingly mostly based around ones and fours, as far as I can tell. Mm. That kind of isn't this. It's weird to hear a five chord in a pop song. I think maybe I'm completely wrong about that, but I think it's weird to hear a five chord in a pop song. Um, huh. And I wonder if maybe that's part of what it is that drew me to him like for someone who spent a lot of my life studying classical music I don't have that much of a fondness for classical music (laughs) and I think part of the reason that I latched onto him so much is that it just kind of resonated with me in a way like harmonically and melodically in a way that most of what I was studying at the time didn't at all right but yeah we were talking you were talking about what a what a strange guy 
he was. Can we talk about his mom for a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about his mom for a little bit. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's funny. I, I almost feel like the more I read about him and his mother, the less I know about what was actually going on there. The, the, the short of it is from his birth to his mother's death, he was basically inseparable from her. They lived together. She would go on tour with him. He composed a lot of she was kind of his muse in a lot of ways she was also incredibly strict incredibly abusive by all you know accounts um and also they had like they had a weird energy there was definitely there was some kind of weird incestuous vibes going on there whether it was an actual you know like physical relationship or not is one thing but it was just one of those things where you see a mother and and adult child in public and you go whoa what's going on there this is i think yeah this is where it gets a little hazy for me and i yeah because i mean she she died by suicide and she left a a note essentially saying that the reason that she had kind of given up was that these kind of rumours of an incestuous relationship with him had kind of dogged her throughout her life. And by Percy Granger's account, by her account, by Percy Granger's biographer's account, there was no incestuous relationship. But throughout his entire life, everybody thought there was to the point that it drove his mother to her grave. Right. So. Uh, and and also on top of that, I... You know, there are there are also. I mean, I wasn't expecting to like go and dive dive deep into this part of the topic, but I was also but, not. <laughs> uh, you know, there uh, there are actual. There's like a modern concept called emotional incest, which is about like an extremely codependent relationship between parent and child, where the parent treats that child as though the child were the parent's romantic partner. And it's like the child's job to take care of the parent in the way that a romantic partner would take care of the parent. Uh, and so there's a lot of controlling behavior and that kind of thing. And, um, you know, that to me, you know, if you, if you ask me to put money on something, I would say it was, it was that more so than, you know, an actual physical relationship. Yeah, I mean, that makes that makes a lot of sense. That's more coherent than any Granger biographers seem to have come up with. And I, yeah, I don't, I sort of feel like it's it's possibly fruitless to, to speculate about this kind of thing. But the reason that we know all this stuff about him is that he documented every detail about himself like particularly the stuff that you would expect to be kept private and that was kind of a lifelong project for him and right we don't we don't actually have to speculate to learn to about about weird sex things in granger's life mm, he was very forthcoming about a lot of that he was he he photographed himself before and after sex he wrote kind of extensive like letters and reviews of the things that he'd done he collected all of his like bdsm paraphernalia and donated it to his own museum which he started curating the collection for while he was still alive and and by the way this was just that was just him being like look no one appreciates me right now but they're going to so i'm gonna make a museum Uh, yeah it's i i don't know if it's i don't know if it was just about recognition it was 
I'm not sure. He, I mean, I'm not, I don't know what the reason was for him self-documenting to the point that he did. But then also, I think there's a parallel between that and the kind of terrifying overcloseness that he had with his mother. Right. It's like if he wasn't self-documenting to her, he was self-documenting to his entire public in a way that would be conserved for the rest of his life. And, like, I I believe you can, if you're in Melbourne, you can go to the Percy Granger Museum and see a bunch of stuff that he collected throughout his life that relates to his work and his life history, but also to his relationships and to his, like, sexual proclivities, which was entirely his decision. There was never an ethical question of, like, we have these things, what do we do with them? He was very, very clear that he wanted everything to be kept and he wanted everything to be kind of conserved and and labelled and placed out in public for people to go and see. Oh, also all of his bath towel suits. Oh, that's right. He realised that yeah, you could he make clothes out of bath towel towels and that they were better than regular clothes <laughs> and he would go around wearing those. He just wore bath towel clothing. Also, I'd completely forgotten about this, but I remember this used to be like my one Granger fact that I would like trot out at parties of nerd music students. He invented the sports bra. Really? Did you come across that? No, I did your... not. He there's there's a letter that he wrote. To, I think it was I think it was to his wife, where he was like, "I figured out the problem that you have when you go running. Here's what you need to do. You need to like make this out of some towels." <laughs> And it is it essentially is a sports bra. He's got like this this like really detailed description in these little blueprints of like how to create a sports bra and he's like, I've solved it for you. Despite all of his negative attributes, there's also just the really weird shit like I only wear clothing made of towels that is just that like honestly strikes a core. I identify with that greatly. Um, but yeah, so he, uh, so after his mother died, that was like a huge turning point in his life. And he kind of, he, he sort of faded from popularity as he decided to stop basically making popular music, right? He was like, well, I'm just going to go even more avant-garde and weird. Some of what was avant-garde about his early stuff was its accessibility. Like, did you come across the, this idea of elastic scoring? No. He developed this whole method, which essentially means that any piece can be played by any combination of musicians. He has things that can be played by, like, small string band, large string band, full orchestra, small chamber orchestra, wind band, or, like, hummers. And there's kind of like switchable directions depending on what ensemble you have available. And his kind of idea was that as long as the kind of balance of tone was preserved, it didn't matter what it was made up of. And so he developed basically this way of scoring music that meant it could be played by any combination of people. I did notice that his... Like, I did see a few of his scores themselves, uh, like the written scores, and, uh, and they, mm. they do look weird. They, look, they, they, they do not look like traditional no, scores. they're super weird. You know, I have a, I have a, a cousin, uh, Arshia Kant, who's done uh, plenty of, of sort of avant-garde, modern, contemporary classical composition, uh, and, and I would see in some of his 
stuff. Just like, you know, just that sort of like, well, we'll just put whatever on the score because the person's a human who can read, so they can just interpret it. Yeah, oh yeah, and there's, yeah, there's a bunch of like, there's a bunch of like deliberately like beatless and rhythmless sections of of compositions as well, which I suppose yeah. is more kind of like straightforward experimental, but... And elastic scoring was another thing that he thought was going to catch on and everybody would be doing it one day. And they're not. No one is. But also it's uh, it's it's not that different, though, from like a like a jazz fake sheet, though. Oh, I hadn't thought about that before. Like that book. makes a lot of sense. That does make a lot of sense. Well, because yeah. it's just like, well, here's your rhythm changes, yeah. you know, and it's like, okay, play faster mm-hmm. here, play slower here. But other than that, it's up to the yeah. improviser to... I, so I've got a quotation here from one of his letters where he says, I do not care whether one of my elastically scored pieces is played by four or 40 or 400 players or any number in between. I do not even care whether the players are skillful or unskillful as long as they play well enough to sound the right intervals and keep the aforesaid tonal balance and as long as they play badly enough to still enjoy playing. Ah! Oh, that's great. Which I'm in favour of. Yeah. Like, Percy Grange, you were a horrible racist, but... You did have the same approach to community <laughs> music as me. <laughs> I have I've never mentioned on this podcast my PhD in ukulele players, and uh, it's been interesting going back to this and looking at his kind of ideas about like amateur music and stuff, and seeing how that's kind of reflected amongst the people that I've been spending time talking to right. about music recently, which is kind of nice. Well, and you're and, and I mean you're you're even doing some of the Granger stuff in your practice of recording this folk music thing that's happening yeah right? i suppose that's true yeah but attempting to do so, so without being horribly racist right <laughs> let's talk about his oh yeah oh we were on yeah we were on free music yeah. he yeah he spent the latter half of his career basically trying to get away from not just kind of traditional large-scale symphonic structure but rhythm and notes and never entirely managing to do so. But he essentially decided that it would be a good idea if music was played not using distinct notes and rhythms, but using kind of sliding melodic contours, which wouldn't necessarily be in anything resembling a key right, or a harmony. Or which I love. I, I actually really like that kind of music. I, do, I mean, obviously, like... You know, if you want to think of like a tradition, a, a quote traditional instrument that fits the mold, theremin would certainly be one of them. Mm. But um, I remember when I when I was in high school, I haven't talked about this on the podcast yet. When I was in high school, I played the turntables. I was a scratch DJ, and uh, the turntables are great because they're this continuous. You know, you're varying the speed at which a, a sound is played back on record. So there's no like there's no concept of a note. There's no concept. Of, there's certainly rhythm to it, but uh, you're essentially um, using your hand to change the playback speed of a sound, um, and it's fully it's fully analog in that sense, and it's fully continuous. So you get you know mm. you're not going from C to D to E. You're going from some number of hertz and then continuously up through, um, you know, from from two thirty five up through whatever and you're hitting all the the frequencies in between 
Uh, so it's all. I'd never thought about that in the con- in the context of turntables before. Yeah, well, my favorite thing to That's my really favorite uh, type of thing was to take a turntable to take a record that had um, test tones on it, so just pure sine waves, and then just manipulate those. Oh wow! Um, and uh, That's so cool. Well, and the, the, <laughs> but th- that also ties in with something else that I was doing at the same time, which was you know I was I spent my high school years in an electronics lab at my high school trying to like build weird instruments. And one of my favorite instruments, again in quotes, but it, it, really it's more of a tone tool <laughs> than an <laughs> instrument. But um, <laughs> this I actually would call a tone tool. Careful now. <laughs> it was literally just, um, it's this little thing that sits on your bench. It's called a signal generator. It just It's just got a knob on it and you can have it generate sine waves from you know one hertz up to 100,000 hertz or what have you. Were you aware that this is actually extremely similar to one of the free music machines that Granger actually built? Did you did you find the list of them? No, I, I no, I didn't find the reading. list. He made one which was called the oscillator playing tone tool, which was based on a Morse code practice oscillator, and that had a variable frequency that was controlled by like a wheel from a sewing machine. Right. Yeah. And then and then you have a, essentially a button to cut the sound in and out. At least is how is how I mm-hmm. the one that I made when I was fifteen was just a a, a frequency generator going through it basically had a mute button on it that you could hold down mm-hmm. to mute it so then you could get some rhythm and if you wanted to try and approximate different notes you could you made the same thing as him i had no idea about this oh my god mine was less racist <laughs> um but yeah that's a that's a that's a that that, that 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 kind of thing is a sound that i love i love those sort of continuous sliding sounds that don't conform to traditional, you know, 12 tone or what have you, um, scales. Did you find the, the piece for Six Theremins by Granger? No. It's one of the only, there's not that much of his free music recorded. And one of the only ones that is, is a piece for Six Theremins. Yeah, it's there's this really interesting like trajectory of the free music machines. He goes from so there's a a movement in I think it's movement five of Lincolnshire Posey, which is probably his most famous like orchestral thing. Yeah, which opens with a completely like beatless introduction where the conductor decides what the rhythm should be. It's not meant to be regular. And that was kind of one of his like early experiments with kind of moving outside conventional rhythm and pitch and whatever. And then he started to build these machines to do it because machines can do that stuff more effectively than people can. And I think he did actually say in some of his letters that his hope for the free music machines was that they would ultimately replace human performers. Obviously they didn't, but I think it's really interesting that 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 was kind of the aim for them from the start was that eventually it was like, well, just automate this and it'll be better than the system we have now. Right. And he started by making versions of things like pianos and harmoniums that had more notes, essentially. He made this thing called the butterfly piano that was just a piano that was modified to have one-sixth tones. So instead of a semitone, it just had more notes. <laughs> yeah. 
And then he also made one called the Reedbox Tone Tool, which was a giant harmonica which was tuned in eighth tones. Right. Which you had to play using a piano roll. So I don't think you could control it using keys. Um, and then there was the one that was the same as the thing that you made. Right. And then there was the giant one, which is, I think, the best-known free music machine and was supposed to be donated to the Granger Museum, but I think it got lost in transit. Yeah, that's what I was reading. It was referred to as the Hills and Dales machine. It was eight foot tall and it had two rotating turrets and you had to, like, cut hill shapes into pieces of paper and feed them through the turrets. And it had eight oscillators and apparently it was incredibly annoying to tune. (laughs) which is one of probably many reasons it didn't catch on. Apparently, there's also blueprints for a version of it that is controlled with, like, light beams. Yes. Where instead you would be, like, painting the painting the score onto, like, a piece of acetate, but that was never built. Right. So he had this... Um this electrical, this engineer that he was that he worked with for like the last ten or fifteen years of his life uh, when he was in New Jersey, uh, and there's like some interesting interviews like with that engineer post his death. I've realized now. I think the thing that I find the most interesting about him is like how nearly he made it. Right. Like he did so many things first. Yeah. But didn't quite do them enough that they're particularly remembered. Like, he made these amazing generative music machines that no one knows about, and he came up with these kind of new ways of scoring things, and no one cares about any of it. It was too small scale. It wasn't kind of... It wasn't sufficiently in, like, the classical canon to be considered worth looking at. And everything that's written about him is is kind of considering his work as a novelty almost. And he is so easy to consider as a novelty because he walked around wearing bath towels and invented the sports bra <laughs> and was a completely incoherent racist. And yet he was so nearly more than that, but just never happened. And I think for some reason, that's the most interesting thing to me about him, how nearly he didn't fail. Well, and that, and he, and he did at, toward, at the end of his life, he did consider his career a failure. Yeah. Or at least he went on record as saying that, you know, he was like, yes, mm. my my life's work has been a failure and, you know, I'm just trying to salvage what I can. Mm-hmm. Which, unfortunately, I think is probably a fairly accurate assessment. Yeah. Yep. Well, do I mean unfortunately? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think also, I don't know, it's been interesting coming back to it. And there's a slightly odd thing I've realized while kind of going back through all of my stuff about him and and looking at things that people have written about him and in the same way as his music is considered a novelty quite a lot of the writing about his racism also seems to be very kind of like superficial and like pointing at it and going ha look how funny this guy's beliefs were and then just moving on and yeah. that doesn't sit particularly well with me. Yeah, I was, I was, I mean, I guess I wasn't surprised at all, just sort of reading over, so like excerpts of biographers, of what biographers have written about him. And yeah, it, it does seem very much like, yeah, it's just they, they treat the racism as a curiosity and then move yeah. on. Which I think is possibly not uncommon in kind of study of 
classical music in particular, I think there's this really kind of odd reverence. Oh, yeah. Which it's hard to escape from. But when there's so little writing on someone anyway, it's perhaps not that surprising that it defaults to kind of uncritical fascination with him, which maybe we've done the same here. I don't know. I think we've been pretty critical. We've tried. Oh, yeah, my kind of final thought on this was, I I mean, I've kind of already said it, but, yeah, I think what still I find really interesting about him is, like, the smallness of his legacy. He left a bunch of stuff behind, but it's all small. All of his works are really short. Everything's, like, two or three minutes. A bunch of the machines were, like, planned out but never quite finished. It's like he did stuff first, but he sort of did it in a a slightly, like, short attention span, low-key way. Well, I mean, that's, like, the theme of this podcast, right? It sure is. It sure is. And maybe that's the reason I liked him so much. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about nature's Wagner. This has been Too Much, Not Enough. I'm Darius Kazemi, a.k.a. Tiny Subversions on Twitter or tinysubversions.com. I'm Emma Winston, a.k.a. Deer underscore full on Twitter. That's deer like the animal underscore F-U-L or emmawinston.me 